Hello and good evening to the doctor. Welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. I've just taken my nighttime medicine. Thank you, Nightquill. Tonight, I figured we would honor the birthday boy who today would have been 102. Mr. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was born on March 24th, 1919 in New York. He was orphaned as a child, raised by rich relatives in France. I think his native tongue originally was French. I'm not sure. Started City Light Books Publishers in San Francisco, which helped publish Howl by Allen Ginsberg. And thus the beat movement began. And so we have Lawrence Ferlinghetti to thank for that. What a interesting character and when people would compare him to the beats while he loved the beats i found a quote of of him from the uh i think it was the santa cruz sentinel because you know in his in his later years he he relished in all the attention that he was getting But at the same time, this is from the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Until his 80s and 90s, when the Lifetime Achievement Award started piling up, he happily inhabited his rebellious reputation and somewhat unsavory association with the beat movement he had nurtured as a publisher. But he insisted he was not of that reckless ethos. He was a clean living merchant tending his North Beach bookshop and raising a family in the neighborhood where he ended up residing for 70 years. Ferlinghetti saw no glory in the excesses of the counterculture, though he recognized its historical necessity, celebrated many of the same values, peace and love, and was a hero to hippies, beatniks, and bohemians of all generations. So I figured reading that, in talking about Mr. Ferlinghetti, you know, um, oh my goodness, what a what an icon! And two years ago, he celebrated his one hundredth birthday. What, uh, you know, and, and not a bad looking man in 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 his early days or later days. I mean, you know, if we can find this. Let's see. Oh, that's it. I don't like when they do the theme. Here's Ferlinghetti. You have to decide if bird cries are cries of ecstasy or cries of despair, by which you will know if you are a tragic or lyric poet. Conceive of love beyond sex. Be subversive, constantly questioning reality and the status quo. Strive to change the world in such a way that there's no further need to be a dissident. Read between the lives and write between the lines. Be committed to something outside yourself. Be passionate about it. But don't destroy the world unless you have something better to replace it. If you would snatch fame from the flames, where is your burning bow? Where your arrows of desire? Where your wit on fire? 
The master class starts wars. The lower classes fight it. Governments lie. The voice of the government is often not the voice of the people. Speak up, act out. Silence is complicity. Be the gadfly of the state and also its firefly. And if you have two loaves of bread, do as the Greeks did. Sell one with the coin of the realm and with the coin of the realm, buy sunflowers. Wake up, the world's on fire. Have a nice day. Uh, this is coming out in a little smaller format than this. This is a, a proof copy. It's actually gonna be close to the size of uh, Chairman Mao's little red book. Mm -hmm. Poetry as insurgent art. Yes. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, 88 years old, still continuing to publish, still going to work every day at the City Lights bookstore that you co-founded in 1953. It was a very small bookstore for many years. A one-room one bookstore with our publishing in, in a room in the cellar. It was really an underground press. This book and the poetry, Poetry is Insurgent Art, where did you write it? Oh, this is a, uh, an ongoing project. A, a book came out a few years ago, about 10 years ago, called What is Poetry? And uh, I keep adding to it as far as definitions of poetry uh, goes. That's an inexhaustible subject. And, Where do you uh, write? Oh, anywhere. Anywhere a thought strikes me. I'm not very systematized that way. Let's uh, go back in time to when you were born. Mm -hmm. Give us a story about where you were born, who your parents were. Oh, I was born in South Yonkers. and uh, In New York? In New York City, just north of Van Cortlandt Park. Uh, but my mother had, my father had died just before I was born, and my mother already had four sons. And I was just too much to, for her to take care of, and she flipped out and had to be hospitalized and um, a French relative actually the wife of uh, my mother's uncle took me to France in swaddling clothes and I lived in Strasbourg for about I'm not sure three to four years and spoke French before English before we came back to the States and uh, then I grew up an all-American boy. Well, not quite a typical <laughs> childhood. Because then that mother, too, your aunt, who you thought at the time was your mother? Yes. Uh, and um, uh, she got a job as a, as a French governess in, in um, a huge mansion that, that was that belonged to the, the daughter of the founder of Sarah Lawrence College, whose name was William Van Duzer Lawrence in Bronxville. And um, the house that my mother got a job as a governess in was just a half a mile from there. It was a big mansion. Uh, it's still there. And um, uh, she disappeared after 
on one of her days off, she never came back. Evidently, uh, uh, pretty bad amnesia. And then um, I never heard from her again until I was in the Navy and got a, a call from a social, Navy social worker saying that she had died in a Saint, Central Islip um, mental institution and um, listed me as her only survivor. So you were raised by the family yeah, that established and, and, Sarah Lawrence yeah, College. The Bisland family, B-I-S-L-A-N-D. Uh, Anna Lawrence Bisland. Um, and like Howard Zinn, you fought in World War II? I did. I was... Um, like many uh, others, too. I was a skipper of a, um, of a United States sub-chaser in the Normandy invasion, first morning, 6 a.m. Um, Anti-submarine anti screen around the beaches of Normandy. And uh, so then uh, I went to the Pacific the last year. I was a navigator on a troop transport and we were steaming toward Japan and uh, in the military and you don't learn anything except what you need to carry out your part of the master plan. So we had we hardly knew what we were going to Japan for, except uh, with all the other ships heading in the same direction, loaded with troops. It was obvious that we were an occupation force. No, it was supposed to be an attack force first, and then when the atomic bombs were dropped, the, the occupation force was changed into a. I mean, the invasion force was changed to an occupation uh, operation, and we went into Sasebo in southern Japan. And that was about, we went in on captured aerial photographs of the harbor. We didn't have any charts for the harbor. And um, one day, ashore, um, we took a train over to Nagasaki. It was just a few hours away. And um, I think it must have been about seven weeks after the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. And there had been time to clear, clean things up, so quote unquote, for, for some time. But still, it was a devastating scene that made me an instant pacifist. There's mm -hmm. just three square miles of mulch with uh, human hair and bones sticking out and, and on the horizon. Uh, a sort of um, a landscape you'd find in the painting of Ansel, Anselm Kiefer these days. Uh, it's um, um, blackened, unrecognizable shapes sticking up on the horizon and, and uh, teacups full of flesh. Um, Did you understand what with, had happened? With flesh, mu flesh melded onto the teacup. Oh, we had no idea what, no one knew what radiation was. We walked around, I don't, I never had any ill effects, but maybe some of the others I was with did. It was just... Did you see live Japanese? No, in the port of Sasebo, we thought we'd, uh, there'd be a lot of Japanese there, but they're all gone, the whole town was like a ghost town, it was all boarded up.
and the, the Japanese had all fled to the hills. It's no, not a Japanese anywhere. So when you came back to the United States, how did you begin to process this and also become <coughs> become aware of politics? Oh, I think Nagasaki did it. I mean, I'd grown up as an all-American boy. I'd been a, a Boy Scout in the suburbs, an Eagle Scout. And, um, except I got busted for stealing pencils from the five and ten cent store the same week I made Eagle Scout. <laughs> but besides little incidents like that, I was a, a true blue American boy, and I... So they sent you I, I away. I had no to... idea. Of, I don't remember ever even hearing of a conscientious objector on the East Coast during the Second World War. It was only when I came to San Francisco and I started listening to KPFA, which had been founded by conscientious objectors. And um, did you and, know Lou Hill? Yes, I met Lou Hill. I think I was on the air while he was still around. And. Um, I knew Kenneth Rexroth, who uh, you could say I was totally illiterate politically until I ran into these guys. I mean, that's where I got my political education from KPFA and from listening to Kenneth Rexroth in his Friday night soirees. And he considered himself a, a philosophical anarchist. Uh, I mean... Allen Ginsberg, there would not have been any B generation recognized as such. It would just have been great separate writers in the landscape. Uh, but Allen, is, he created the whole thing himself. So explain what happened, uh, what the obscenity trial was. Well, we had a trial in the municipal court in San Francisco. It went on all one summer. And um, we had... Um, Al Bendick of the American Civil Liberties Union trying his first case, defending us without, I mean, thank God for the American Civil Liberties Union. We would have been out of business in no time. We're just a little one-room bookstore. We didn't have any money for legal defenses. And uh, then we, the, uh, Jake Ehrlich, a famous criminal lawyer, associated himself with the case and used up most of <coughs> the program quoting from old classics like Moll Flanders and leaving just about the last five minutes of the last day for the ACLU attorney, Al Bendick, to make the constitutional case upon which the, the constitutional points upon which the case was won and the judge uh, ruled that, uh, that if there is any, if there's a slightest redeeming social importance, the book could not be censored. And that uh, precedent, even though it was only a municipal court, has held up all these years uh, so that you... And so I got cut off. Uh, that was an interview from 2007 from Democracy Now! with Lawrence Ferlinghetti discussing the obscenity trial when Hal was published and they tried to, you know, get rid of Hal by Allen Ginsberg and, you know, but thankfully they didn't. Um, and so I thought I would just play that clip, you know, 
the beat generation wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Mr. Lawrence Ferlinghetti and City Lights Publishing. So we have to acknowledge him as a, an icon. He's also been in a couple of films. The Source from 1999 and The Last Waltz by the band where he delivered the Lord's Prayer. But we've played it before. So, Mr. Ferlinghetti, I want to thank you for your life, for all those 102 years, and A Coney Island of the Mind. Such a such a great book. Oh, this is here's a here's a intro of it. The title of this book is taken from Henry Miller's Into the Night Life and expresses the way Ferlinghetti felt about these poems when he wrote them during a short period in the 1950s, as if they were taken together, a kind of Coney Island of the mind, a kind of circus of the soul. A Coney Island of the mind is not about geographical Coney Island. The author intended it as a sustained metaphor or allegory of modern life. For Linguetti's A Coney Island of the mind has become a modern classic. It has been translated into nine languages. There are now over a million copies in print. Yes. What a, what a icon. And just so happens I will grace you with some of his brilliance tonight I am very well I'm feeling good you know I guess the medication is kicking in (laughs) the poet's eye obscenely seen sees the surface of the round world with its drunks rooftops and wooden OCX on clotheslines and its clay males and females with hot legs and rosebud breasts in roll away, roll away beds and its trees full of mysteries and its Sunday parks and speechless statues and its America with its ghost towns and empty Ellis Islands and its surrealist landscape of mindless prairies, supermarket suburbs, steam heated cemeteries, Simarama holy days and the protesting cathedrals, a kiss proof world of plastic toilet seats, tampacks and taxis, drugstore cowboys and Las Vegas virgins, disowned Indians and cinemade matrons, Uniram and senators and conscientious non-objectors and all of the other fatal shorn up fragments of the immigrant stream come true and mislaid among the sun bathers yeah that's Mr. Lawrence Ferlinghetti Coney Island of the Mind well good sir happy birthday wherever you are and got the beat got the beat beat Unpleasant dreams.